Faithful only slowed a bit as he approached the wicket gate, throwing himself into it, causing it to shudder but not quite buckle against his weight. He only noticed the instructions engraved in the wood when he had already begun to obey them, pounding his fist against the little gate. The door opened a bit, and a very grave man asked, Who are you, and where do you come from, and what do you want? Who am I? Who are you? Faithful demanded. Why, I am Goodwill, and sir, if you have any Goodwill, you will let me in right now, for even one more moment on this side of the gate might mean my death. The gatekeeper smiled widely and stepped back, pulling the gate open behind him. I was watching you, he said, closing and bolting the gate. Through a peep in the wall, I saw the enemy's attack and was considering how I might lend you aid when suddenly, victory was yours. Faithful nodded sharply, his eyes glazed over and fixed on the backside of the little gate. Are you all right, sir? Goodwill asked. Don't worry, the gate is secure. Faithful enveloped him in a rough embrace that quite nearly crushed him. Then he began to weep. <laughs> oh, take heart, Goodwill croaked. It's all over now. She's gone. Faithful let him go and wiped his face against his sleeve. It's not the, it's not the woman wanton that has me so shaken. It was not she who almost brought me down to the grave. It was something inside of myself, something deep in me that truly wanted to follow her down to hell, even knowing that's where she would lead me. I fear I've slipped in through this gate under the guise of a true pilgrim when I actually don't deserve to be here at all. I know you, Faithful, and you are true to your name. No pilgrim deserves to enter through the wicked gate or to journey to the celestial city, but our king is full of mercy and grace and will look upon your faith and count it as righteousness. Why, it was by his grace that you even withstood the enemy at the gate. For it is written, the abhorred of the Lord fall into her pit. But you escaped her. Faithful slumped against a dogwood tree and slid down the trunk until he sat in its shade, eyes closed. Goodwill, my friend... I do not know whether I did wholly escape her. Don't be so dramatic, and, and don't go to sleep just yet, Faithful. You have more to do while it is still day. Oh, just, just a few minutes of... Maybe you just need a drink, Goodwill said, sloshing his water skin onto Faithful. Whoa, whoa, I'm up, I'm up! Good grief! What is it about today, Goodwill mused. Two pilgrims in a row, traveling all alone. Our Lord sent his apostles out two by two for a reason. Faithful shrugged. I'm unmarried, my partner in business would sooner trample holy things underfoot than accept them, and my neighbors tried to string me up just yesterday. How would I arrive, if not alone? Mm -hmm. You know, you say that you're up, and yet there you still sit, under that tree. Faithful stood, groaning under his burdens. There. You happy? Save a little water for drinking. And, and tell me, where would you have me go before nightfall? An hour's walk from here, you will find the house of the interpreter, who will reveal great wonders to you. And beyond that is the Holy of Holies, where you will be delivered. The weariness faded from the pilgrim's face, replaced by a hint of hope. Delivered, he repeated. By the grace of God. Now, make haste, Goodwill commanded, tossing him the half-full water skin. You may yet catch him today. Catch who? Two are better than one. Hmm? They can help each other up, keep each other warm, watch each other's backs? You mean the pilgrim who passed through here before me? You, you think I can catch him? I do, if you mend your pace and make some real progress. 
High and Silver and Gut Check Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress. From this world to that which is to come. John Bunyan's Timeless Christian Allegory. As told by Zachary Bartles. Chapter 5. Deliverance. The interpreter led Christian back down the stairs, through the parlor, and into a small kitchen where a table of ash and a fireside chair filled most of the room. A roaring fire burned in the brick fireplace, hot and high. Before it stood a sallow, hunched man fixed in place, continually dousing the fire with water. Bucket after bucket he sloshed onto the flames, trying to extinguish them, and no sooner did he run out than a ghoulish boy would drag in yet more water, carrying six buckets at a time on a long staff balanced over his shoulders. The result was that water gushed continually into the fire, and yet, rather than being quenched, the flames blazed all the hotter, edged with a pyrotechnic blue. Still, if the man tired of his task or grew impatient or frustrated, he hit it well. Christian studied the man as he mechanically emptied unending containers into the fireplace. Then the man turned his head and met Christian's gaze, and the pilgrim took an involuntary step back. His eyes were yellow, their elliptical pupils nothing more than horizontal slits. He glared at Christian as he emptied the bucket, then turned his attention back to the flames. What means this? Christian asked. The fire is the work of grace, wrought in the heart of a saint. This man is the devil himself, ever endeavoring to extinguish the flame with the help of his servant, the world. He tires not, nor is he distracted from his work. And yet, as you can see, the fire waxes hotter and brighter and higher yet. But how? The fire itself is supernatural? It is indeed, the interpreter said. In days of old, our king sent fire down from heaven upon the altar of Elias, which burned up not only the bullock upon the altar, but the water in the trench and the stones themselves. But even holy fire can languish and die over time. And how long has this fire been burning? Many, many years. I confess, Christian said, that I do not fully grasp the meaning of this vision. Ah, but you will follow me. He led Christian out a servant's entrance to the outside of the same wall, where another man stood, holding a vessel in his hand, from which he continually poured oil into a channel, constantly feeding the fire. Does he not run out of oil? Never. Do you recall another tale of Elias the prophet, he and the widow of Zarephath? Yes. Her oil was miraculously replenished until the drought had ended. Is this man that prophet? By no means. All the prophets of old bow down and worship at this man's feet. This is Christ himself. With the oil of his grace, he maintains the work already begun in the heart. His grace is never exhausted, and whatever wiles the enemy may concoct to snuff out that fire, he feeds the flames with his grace ever sufficient to keep the souls of his people burning bright. And yet he works here in secret, his ways mysterious, and often unseen. I understand, Christian said. When tempted and tried, a pilgrim may not see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. The interpreter nodded. And yet, he can rest assured that God is applying his grace, feeding the fire which he himself kindled. 
Christian thought that he would be content to gaze upon this vision of Christ feeding the fire with his unending oil forever, although he could only see his back. But the interpreter took him by the hand and began leading him away from the house. Come, he said, I will show you a stately palace where more wonders await. They walked for a few minutes along a pleasant path over rolling hills until a beautiful majestic palace came into view. Christian turned around twice, surveying the land and trying to get his bearings. Which way is the gate? he asked. Worry not about that. Tell me what you see. A fortress as delightful as it is secure. I see men and women walking on top of it, clothed entirely in gold. I see turrets and towers and battlements, all of pure gold as well. In all my life, I have never seen anything as lovely or magnificent as this, and I have never wanted to enter any place as badly as I want to enter through that gate now. Please tell me that is where we're headed next. Keep watching, good Christian, the interpreter said, leading him closer. About fifty yards from the door stood a great company of men, all gazing upon the palace with the same longing that Christian felt, but none of them dared to go in. What do you suppose is holding them back? the interpreter asked. Only then did Christian notice the detachment of troops guarding the entrance. Frightful, battle-hardened men, heavy-laden with armor and brandishing swords, maces, and battle axes. Beside them, a clerk sat at a small table with a book and inkhorn before him, pen poised in his hand to take the names of any who would dare try to enter. One by one, the gathered rabble approached the clerk, only to lose heart at the sight of the armed guards and shrink back. Just when Christian thought that none would find his courage and gird his loins for battle, a stout and determined man drew up to the table and loudly declared, Write my name down, sir. He wore a leather breastplate, tassets, and greaves. When the clerk had obliged him, he pulled a helmet onto his head, drew his sword, and rushed into the midst of the guard. As one man they descended upon the warrior, swarming down from the gate and striking blows upon him with their weapons, their fists, the heels of their boots. Undeterred, he slipped their attacks and countered, cutting and hacking with deadly precision. In the space of a minute, he had gained a good deal of ground and left a half-dozen bleeding bodies behind him. Christian gasped as one of the guards managed to circle around behind the brave warrior and pierced his flesh, sending him down to one knee. But as quickly as he went down, the valiant warrior rose, spun, and with a single blow removed the man's head from his body. Turning again to face his foes, he saw them shrink back, no longer in tight formation. Pushing his advantage, the warrior rushed forward once again, cutting the legs out from beneath one, pushing through a painful wound to his temple, and dispatching two more enemies with savage, piercing strikes. Regrouping, the remaining four men made to surround him, but the warrior advanced too quickly, parrying a lunge, feigning a strike, and ramming his sword through the belly of the nearest man. Releasing the hilt, he grabbed up the axe from his vanquished foe and charged at the last few men, crushing skulls and felling them all in a vicious advance, which brought him finally through the gate. When he had disappeared into the palace, one of the men watching from atop called out in a pleasant voice, Come in, come in. Eternal glory shall you win. A moment later, the warrior himself appeared with the men above, who clothed him head to toe in the same golden garments they wore. Smiling, Christian said, I think I know the meaning of this one. Please, may I go in now? We will go in, the interpreter said, but not to the heights. Follow me. Leading him around the back of the palace, the interpreter pointed to a set of rock-hewn stairs leading down beneath the ground and said, the next wonder awaits you through that door. 
Christian balked. Something about this descent into darkness brought to life a sense of blind fear the likes of which he had not known since childhood. Could I at least see the inside of the palace first? he asked. The interpreter simply pointed again, down into the belly of the earth. Pushing against his fear, Christian descended into a dank dungeon which stunk of filth and despair. There, in the middle of the room, an iron cage was suspended from the ceiling. In it, an emaciated man sat gripping the bars. His eyes, filled with sorrow and devoid of hope, met Christian's for a moment before his gaze fell back to the floor of his cage. Who is this? Christian asked. Why don't you ask him? Uh, who are you? I am what I once was not. Well then, what were you? The man sighed heavily, like the sound of a breaking heart. I was a professing Christian, determined to walk the narrow way. Or at least that's what I told my friends, and my family, and even myself. If you had asked anyone back then what I wanted, what I lived for, they would have told you the celestial city was my aim. And if you had asked me, I would have told you with true joy in my breast that I would enter in there at the last. Christian stepped closer. So, what are you now? The man lurched forward in the cage, eyes wild. I am a man of despair. I am shut up in this iron cage, and I cannot get out. He slumped again against himself and studied his hands folded in his lap. Oh, how I cannot. But how did you go from one to the other? I slept when I should have watched. I left off being sober and alert. I laid the reins upon the necks of my lust and sinned against the very light of the world and all the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit, and now he's gone. I tempted the devil, and now he's here with me, always with me. It's one thing to be tempted by the evil one, but to tempt him is far more dangerous. And now here I sit in this cage with God's wrath kindled against me and a heart so hardened that it cannot repent. Christian wanted to offer some consolation, but was at a loss. Turning to the interpreter, he asked, is, is there no hope for this man? The old sage simply gestured at the man in the cage. Is there truly no hope for you, sir? Nothing but to remain in this iron cage of despair? Nothing at all. But that can't be. The Son of the Most High is merciful and kind. This is true, and yet I have crucified him anew to myself and put him to open shame. I have despised his person, despised his righteousness, despised his mercy. I have counted his blood an unholy thing and made a mockery of it. I have trampled the spirit of grace underfoot, and in doing so, I have shut myself out of all the promises so that nothing remains for me but threats, dreadful threats, faithful threats of certain judgment, wrath, and fire, the fruit of the curse. What could have been worth all that? The man laughed a desperate, hollow laugh and said, <laughs> Worth it? Nothing. I traded the promises of life eternal for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world. They promised me great delight and satisfaction, but they never intended to deliver. And now they just gnaw at me, biting my flesh, feeding on me like a burning worm while I remain locked in this cage. The answer is plain to me, Christian said. Repent, turn from your lusts and passions, and throw yourself at the mercy of the, the Prince of Mercy. You aren't listening, 
Repentance is out of my reach. My heart is hardened, my conscience seared. God has handed me over to my own shameful desires, and now I cannot even bear the thought of parting with them, even while they consume me. In this state, his word gives me no encouragement, no hope. In fact, it was your God himself who locked me up in this iron cage so that all the men in the world cannot let me out. He threw his head back against the bars and shouted, Oh, eternity! How can I grapple with this misery through all eternity? Christian reached through the bars to comfort the man, but his hand was cold upon the prisoner's flesh, and he pulled it back immediately. The interpreter said, Remember this man's misery, that it might be a perpetual warning to you, Christian. I'm certain I will never forget it. God, help me to watch and be sober and alert, to pray that I would never walk in the way of this man's desolation. Christian turned his back on the man in the cage and said, I can take no more. I I think it's time for me to go now. My burden is so heavy. I cannot bear it even another hour. Just, Just send me on my way, good interpreter. Your deliverance is at hand. But before you go, allow me to show you just one more thing. The interpreter led him deeper into the dungeon, through a grotto, and down a narrow hall where, even stooping down, Christian had a hard time squeezing through with the burden on his back. Then they came to a door, which the interpreter opened and bid the pilgrim to enter. Passing through it, Christian found himself back on the landing in the interpreter's house. The old man shuffled past him and opened the door to the same bedchamber where they had previously encountered passion and patience. Only the room was entirely different now. There a man was rising out of bed, white as a sheet, shaking and trembling as he got dressed. Sir, Christian said, entering the room, why are you shaking like that? The man fell back onto his mattress and ran his fingers through thick black hair. Last night I had the most intense and vivid and terrifying dream. I dreamt that the sky grew exceedingly black, blotting out the moon and every star. Thunder began to rumble in from the east, and flashes of lightning all but blinded me. In each new flash, I saw new terrors. Four men on horses, riding over the land, bringing with them plague and war and famine. The angel of death, emptying vials of pestilence all over the land. In due time, the sky suddenly burned bright with a prime, pure, white light, as if the last flash of lightning had been drawn out indefinitely, and I saw a man sitting on a cloud arrayed in gold and shining like the sun. He was surrounded by creatures I cannot begin to describe, all blinking eyes and beating wings and awesome terror, and around them, Thousands and thousands of celestial warriors clothed in shining garments, their swords drawn and ready for war. And I heard the sound of a trumpet and a voice saying, Arise ye dead and come to judgment. And with that, the rocks began to shake and crack and crumble, and the graves of the dead were opened, and they came forth, some exceedingly glad, looking upward, and some scurrying about hideously, like scattering insects exposed to the light, trying to hide themselves even beneath the broken rocks. Then I saw the one who sat upon the cloud open a book and gather all the world to himself, drawing them in, many against their will, but they were kept at a distance as the accused in a courtroom is kept back from the magistrate, for a wall of fire held them back. And the man who came on the clouds of heaven said to his host, 
gather the tares, the chaff, the stubble, and cast them into the lake of fire. And I saw the bottomless pit opened up right where I stood, and I was overcome by the smoke and flames that issued forth from it and paralyzed with fear by the hideous noises from beneath. And the one on the cloud spoke again, saying, Now bring the wheat into the granary. And I saw many gathered and caught up into the clouds with him, but I was left below. I tried to hide myself, but the man who sat upon the clouds kept his eyes fixed upon me, and my sins, all my sins, came into my mind all at once, and my own conscience accused me on every side. He looked up at Christian, and that's when I awoke. You dreamt that the day of judgment had come, and you were not ready. The man nodded. But what frightened me most was not the bottomless pit or the shrieks from the lake of fire, rather the judge whose eyes were ever upon me. The interpreter took Christian by the arm and led him back out to the landing. Have you considered all these things? Yes, they have given me hope and fear. Keep them in your mind, to press you forward in the way that you must go and keep you from veering off to either side, and take solace in this, that the Comforter will always be with you, to guide you along the way. And now it is time to go. Thank you, good interpreter, Christian said. I don't believe I've ever met anyone like you. I hear that a lot. From downstairs came the sound of someone knocking at the door. Deacon, the interpreter called. Could you answer the door? I am showing good Christian out. He led the pilgrim down the stairs, through the kitchen, and out the service entrance. Before him, Christian now saw the narrow way starting right there at the doorway and heading straight out toward the shining light. Christian traveled for less than half an hour before the highway became fenced in by a wall on either side. A brass plate bearing the word salvation gave the name of the wall. At this point, the road began to incline, slightly at first, but before long it was so steep that Christian struggled to ascend with the burden on his back. He hated his burden with a renewed loathing. It had become intolerable, cutting off circulation so that his hands tingled and tremored, compressing his spine so that every move ached and creaked. Walking along level ground was hard enough, and yet Christian pushed ever upward even as the walls on both sides closed inward and the road became so narrow that it barely accommodated the breadth of his shoulders. And yet, despite his pain and lethargy, Christian felt a renewed sense of hope for what lie ahead, as well as rekindled fear for the destruction at his back. And so he began to run, and the faster he ran, the more power he felt coursing through him. Soon he came to a brief leveling, where the road curved a bit so as to take him around a large, rocky outcropping. Only when he had reached the other side did he see it for what it was. A tomb. This was confirmed for Christian when he leaned down to peer in the entrance, for the stone that would have sealed the tomb had been rolled back. Upon the rock-hewn shelf where the body should have lain was a burial cloth, blood-stained and bearing the faintest image of a man. Closer to the entrance, apart from the sheet, was a smaller cloth folded up and absolutely caked in dried blood. Studying these unclean grave clothes, it occurred to Christian that these were pure and spotless compared to his own filthy rags. For the first time in many days, he truly looked down at himself and assessed his condition. 
His shirt, which had once been a pleasant beige, was no longer any particular color. It was tattered and threadbare, nasty and putrid-smelling. Having slowly grown accustomed to it long ago, Christian could suddenly smell his own foul odor anew and see his own disgusting condition as if taking himself in from another's point of view. The burden itself was foul, he now realized, in a way that it had never seemed to him before. It had been a source of pain, worry, and alarm, a weight to slow him down and hold him back, but now he was aware of its contents. The horrific, rotting filth he'd carried with him everywhere he'd gone. The filth he was even now carrying with him toward the celestial city. It was clear as could be, and it was this place that made the difference. Christian was sure of it. Turning again toward the uphill path, Christian could now see the summit not far ahead, and there, a cross of wood stood silhouetted against the orange sky. Christian began to run once again, faster than he ever had, racing up the mount toward the cross. The walls at his side seemed to be propelling him forward, as did every hope and desire within him. The cross itself was drawing him upward, and he moved now as if he wore no burden at all, feeling lighter than he'd ever felt before. And then he heard it, something behind him. He stopped for a moment and looked back, only to see his burden having fallen away, tumbling down the hill, end over end, faster and faster, until it disappeared into the mouth of the tomb. Resuming his climb, he practically floated the last few feet and fell down at the foot of the cross. There he felt as if his heart would burst with joy and holy sorrow. Hope enveloped him, the kind of hope he'd never dared even hope for. Words came to his lips and he praised the prince whose cross and empty tomb had won his salvation, saying, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. To him be glory and honor and wisdom and thanks and all power and might forever and ever. When he had tarried a while on his face before the cross, he stood and gazed up at it, amazed that simply by looking upon it, his burden should have fallen from his back. As he studied the blessed sight of his Savior's passion, the floodgates broke, and tears streamed down his cheeks, tears of repentance and joy and relief and awe. He was still weeping when three shining ones came to him, greeting him with the words, Peace be with you. Christian could only nod back at them. The first approached him and touched him on the back where his burden had been, where he'd felt nothing but chafing and stiffness and pain for such a long time. Your sins have been forgiven you, he said. The second came forth and stripped him of his filthy rags, washed him clean, and clothed him with all new raiment, including a beautiful coat the likes of which Christian had never seen before. You are now clothed in the righteousness of the Savior. The third approached and placed a mark on his forehead and a scroll in his hand with a seal upon it. Keep this close to you at all times, he instructed. Look upon it for comfort as you travel, and present it at the celestial gate. Christian again began to weep, saying, I'm sorry for my tears. I just, I, I felt like I would never arrive, and now I'm finally here. Your tears are right and good, said the Shining One. But do not be misled. Here you receive forgiveness, and here you are relieved of your burden. But this is not the end. This is only the beginning.
Thanks for listening. To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress. Make sure you don't miss a beat by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a moment to leave us an honest review. The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's Classic Manuscript. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2022, high and silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Additional sound effects and music licensed from Pond5.com. For more audio experiences of my fiction, visit www.zacharybartles.com audio. And silver. Good. Check. Break!